if it hurts a bunch of college kids that's too lazy to get up off their bohunkers and, and go get a photo ID, so be it. Right, right. If it hurts the whites, so be it. If it hurts a bunch of lazy blacks that wants their, the government to give them everything, so be it. And it just so happens that a lot of those people vote Democrat. Gee. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show, and right now, during our summer fundraiser, you can help support this show and great climate change and sustainability organizations by donating to my climate ride and becoming a member of the show at the same time. If you do both, you can receive a free Best of Left t-shirt made of recycled materials as a thank you gift. Just go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the summer fundraiser banner for all the details. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, the Tom Hartman program, Counterspin, The Bradcast, and Freakonomics. Voting rights advocates have won a number of major victories that could reshape the November election. Over the past 10 days, a series of court rulings have struck down new voting restrictions in North Carolina, Wisconsin, Kansas, and Texas. On Friday, a U.S. appeals court struck down a North Carolina law that required voters to show photo identification, scale back early voting, ended out-of-precinct voting, and prevented residents from registering to vote on Election Day. In a remarkable judgment, the three-judge panel found North Carolina's law targeted African Americans, quote, with almost surgical precision, unquote. The judge found the legislators wrote the law after requesting data that showed African Americans disproportionately used early voting in both 2008 and 2012. Judge Diana Motz wrote, quote, we cannot ignore the recent evidence that because of race, the legislature enacted one of the largest restrictions of the franchise in modern North Carolina. History. Meanwhile, in Wisconsin, a federal judge has struck down a string of Wisconsin voting restrictions passed by the Republican-led legislature and signed by Governor Scott Walker. U.S. District Judge James Peterson wrote that the objective of the law was to, quote, suppress the reliably Democratic vote of Milwaukee's African Americans. A week earlier, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit struck down a Texas law, which has been described as the nation's most restrictive voter ID law. In a nine to six ruling, the court found the law has, quote, a discriminatory effect on minorities voting rights, unquote. Joining us now is Ari Berman, senior contributing writer for The Nation, where he covers voting rights. His book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, will be out in paperback tomorrow. Berman's recent piece for The Nation is called The Country's Worst Anti-Voting Law Was Just Struck Down in North Carolina. Ari, welcome back to Democracy Now! Good morning, Explain Amy. what happened there first. So the decision in North Carolina, in my opinion, was the biggest victory for voting rights since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013. And it was so significant because North Carolina passed the country's worst voting restrictions. As you mentioned, they didn't just require strict voter ID. They cut back on early voting. They eliminated same-day voter registration. They eliminated out-of-precinct voting. They eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. And they did so just a month after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. And John Roberts said that voting discrimination was largely a thing of the past. So both what North Carolina did and when they did it made this ruling so significant. And it was really remarkable to see the Fourth Circuit use such blunt language in describing what North Carolina did, that they did target black voters with almost surgical precision. This wasn't about stopping voters. 
voter fraud. This was about voter suppression. It was about suppressing black votes. Explain exactly how it worked. So how the decision worked or how the law how worked? How the law worked. So the law worked in a bunch of different ways. First off, the law said that you had to show strict forms of government-issued ID to cast a ballot. They excluded IDs like student IDs. They excluded municipal government IDs that African Americans were more likely to have. Then they cut back on same-day voter registration, the ability to show up and register to vote before the election, which is critically important in a state like North Carolina, which has very diverse demographics. They eliminated the ability to vote anywhere in your county. So people, for example, who work a long shift, they can go and vote uh, after their job as opposed to having to go back to their home area. They eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds, which was taught in high school civics classes to encourage young people to register to vote. So all of these reforms that North Carolina implemented, the state the state got rid of. And what was fascinating is the court laid out a, a very coherent narrative. They said that beginning in 2000, North Carolina adopted these reforms like early voting and same-day registration. As a result, voter participation increased dramatically. North Carolina went from 37th in voter turnout in 2000 to 12th in voter turnout by 2012. And most importantly, the disparities between black and white voters were eliminated. That black registration and turnout actually increased over white registration and turnout in 2008 and in 2012. And it was at that very moment that the North Carolina legislature decided to go after all of the different voting methods that were used by African Americans. And the Fourth Circuit basically said this was not a coincidence. The legislature knew what had increased political participation. They knew what had increased black turnout. And those were the very voting methods that the legislature decided to eliminate. Can you explain more about Sunday voting? Yeah. So uh, Sunday voting is historically called souls to the polls. When African-American churches tell their constituents to go vote. And it's a very important day in the African-American community. And North Carolina eliminated one of two days of Sunday voting. And the legislature said that the North Carolina, leg the, the Fourth Circuit said that the legislature had data showing that Sunday voting was used more in African-American communities by Democratic voters. And that's why they eliminated this. And the Fourth Circuit said that the elimination of Sunday voting was the closest thing to a smoking gun that you will ever find in modern times. This is amazing language for a court to use. This is not language that's from 1865. This is not language that's from 1965. This is the fact that voter suppression is going on right now in the United States in the year 2016. Can you move from North Carolina to Wisconsin? Well, it was remarkable to see the fact that there were two decisions striking down voter suppression laws within hours of each other, uh, describing very similar things. Wisconsin, like North Carolina, didn't just pass a voter ID law. They passed a bunch of other under-the-radar voting restrictions. For example, they eliminated early voting on nights and weekends when it's most convenient to be able to vote. They made it harder to register to vote. They made it harder to cast an absentee ballot. And the court in Wisconsin struck down these restrictions as well. And they said, like in North Carolina, that these restrictions were not about stopping, quote, phantom instances of voter fraud. They were about trying to suppress the African-American vote in heavily Democratic cities like Milwaukee. So the fact that we saw decisions in North Carolina and Wisconsin just hours apart, striking down very similar laws and the decisions using very similar language was a huge victory for voting rights. Um. Talk about the next decision, 
We've got Wisconsin. We've got North Carolina. What about Texas? So in Texas, they struck down that state's uh, voter ID law, the strictest voter ID law in the country, because in Texas, you can vote with a gun permit, but not a student ID under their voter ID law. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said this discriminated against black and Hispanic voters. Now, unlike North Carolina, even though they ruled that the law was discriminatory, they left the law in place, but said that those people without IDs still need to be able to vote, which is about 5% of Texas's electorate. And that means that they either will be able to show their voter registration card, or they'll be able to vote with an affidavit if they don't have these strict forms of ID. So this is a major victory, but at the same time, people have to know that they still have the ability to vote in Texas. The word needs to to get out to these voters that can't comply with the law, that they're able to vote in November. And that's going to require a major education campaign because Texas has done nothing to make it easier for people to vote in that state. All right. Talk about <clears throat> Elizabeth Golar. So Elizabeth Golar is someone I, I wrote about. Uh, she's an elderly woman who was born in Jim Crow, North Carolina, and then she moved to Texas. She had uh, a Louisiana driver's license, which was not accepted as valid voter ID in Texas. And her birth certificate was not accepted as a valid form of ID to be able to get a government-issued ID in Texas. And because she was born at home uh, to a midwife, she basically had to retain a lawyer to be able to get all her documentation in Louisiana. Uh, and this was incredibly emotional. She testified in federal court and basically said, I was born in Jim Crow before African-Americans were able to vote in Louisiana. And now I can't vote again. For the first time in 60 years, I am not able to vote in the state of Texas. And this breaks my heart. And so to be able to see people like Elizabeth Golar have the right to vote again, to be able to see people in North Carolina who battled Jim Crow laws be able to vote, this is remarkable. And I think this transcends partisanship. A lot of times we've been talking about these restrictions hurting Democratic constituencies being uh, passed by Republicans. But we have to step back and think that this is not just about party. This is about the fact that people who had been voting all their lives, lost the right to vote, and now they're able to get the right to vote back. I wanted to turn to a comment of Donald Trump speaking at a rally earlier this year in New Hampshire. Uh, Donald Trump said the voting system is out of control. Look, you got to have real security with the voting system. This voting system is out of control. You have people, in my opinion, that are voting many, many times. They don't want security. They don't want cards. That was Donald Trump. Well, like with many Donald Trump statements, it's not exactly clear that he knew what he was talking about. Uh, but I think what he was trying to suggest was that there is lots of fraud in American elections and there needs to be more security in terms of how uh, elections are run. I should say that the type of voter fraud that people say is most prevalent, voter impersonation, is incredibly rare. You're more likely to be struck by lightning than you are to impersonate another voter. Since 2000, there have been a billion votes cast in only 31 cases of voter impersonation. So this is uh, incredibly rare. Uh, but I already see Donald Trump now fanning the flames of voter fraud. He retweeted something from the actor James Woods, very conservative actor, saying if Hillary wins, it'll be because of voter fraud. So it's not surprising that the country's leading birther who questioned President Obama's citizenship is now crying wolf about voter fraud and already trying to say that if he loses in November, it will be because of nefarious behavior, even though this kind of fraud is incredibly rare, and even though states in courts in North Carolina and Wisconsin recently have basically said voter fraud 
is not a problem. This has been a pretext that Republicans have used to try to disenfranchise Democratic voters. So, Ari, go to the overall picture right now. Talk about who is going to be able to vote in this election. Are there other judgments that uh, we are waiting for in courts around the country? Yeah, it's still a very uncertain situation. We're less than 100 days from the election now, and this is the first presidential election in 50 years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. 17 states have new restrictions in place for the first time. In some states, uh, these restrictions have been struck down, like in North Carolina, but they're on appeal. In other states, the laws have been softened, like in Texas and Wisconsin, but they're still in effect. There are new restrictions that are being challenged in court in places like Ohio and Virginia. So there's a lot of activity still going on in the courts. This is by no means settled. And even once the court decisions happen, people need to know what the laws are in these states. So we still have millions of voters that are impacted by new voting restrictions uh, that need to be helped. People need to be registered to vote. They need to know what the law is. They need to be uh, ready to vote in November. And so this is still a a very uh, unsettled issue that needs a lot more national attention. Ari Berman, I want to thank you for being with us. Ari Berman, senior contributing writer for The Nation, where he covers voting rights. His book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. The paperback is out this week. And we'll link to your article in The Nation, The Country's Worst Anti-Voting Law Was Just Struck Down in North Carolina. Michael Lyons wrote just an absolutely brilliant piece in the Saturday New York Times. I don't know if you caught it, but it's really worth going back and looking for if you didn't. It's, I'm sure it's still up on the New York Times website. Um, and the title of it is uh, Critics. Uh, actually, it was the Sunday New York Times. In fact, it was published Sunday on their online one. I, I'm guessing it probably is showing up in today's newspaper. Because when you look at the uh, URL, it's NewYorkTimes.com slash 2016 slash 08 slash 01, which is today. And then, you know, it has the title. But it, it starts in Sparta, Georgia, which is a little town of rural Georgia. When the deputy sheriff's, this is a little town of just a couple thousand people, right? When the deputy sheriff's patrol cruiser, the, Michael Wines wrote this, then the deputy sheriff's patrol cruiser pulled up beside him as he walked down Broad Street in, at sunset last August, Marty Flournoy, Flournoy, a 32-year-old black man, was both confused and rattled. He had reason. In this corner of rural Georgia, African Americans are arrested at a far higher rate than that of whites. But the deputy had not come to arrest Mr. Flournoy. Rather, he had come to challenge Mr. Flournoy's right to vote. The majority white Hancock County Board of Elections and Registration was systematically questioning the registrations of more than 180 black Sparta citizens one-fifth of the city's registered voters. By dispatching deputies with summonses, commanding them to appear in person to prove their residence or lose their voting rights. Mr. Flournoy says, when I read that letter, I was kind of nervous, didn't know what to do. The county attorney, Barry A. Fleming, a Republican state representative, said in an interview that the elections board was only trying to restore order to an electoral process. Right. 
A June survey by the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund found that governments in six former pre-clearance states. Now, these were states that before John Roberts' Supreme Court struck down the, you know, the major provisions of the Voting Rights Act. These states had to go before the federal government and say, may we make these changes in our voter registration and voting laws because we have a history of making changes to prevent black people from voting. That's gone now. They no longer have to ask permission. So they're just, you know, going ahead full tilt boogie to do everything they can to stop black folks from vote, folks from voting. In six former pre-clearance states have closed registration or polling places, making it harder for minorities to vote. Local jurisdictions in six more redrew districts have changed election rules in ways that diluted minority votes. Alabama, this is mind-boggling. This is Jeff Sessions' state. Alabama moved last year to close 31 driver's license offices, almost all in rural seats, areas with large African-American populations. After lawsuit threats, the state chose to open the offices for at least one day a month. Governor Robert J. Bentley, a Republican, has strongly denied that the closings were racially motivated. Right. In Pasadena, Texas, officials eliminated two district council seats in largely Hispanic areas in 2014, replaced them with at-large seats chosen largely by white voters. In Macon, Bibb County, Georgia, in February, the election board moved a polling place in a predominantly black neighborhood from a gymnasium to the county sheriff's office. In Georgia, a federal lawsuit accuses that state of illegally purging its voter rolls in a recent period... 327,000 voters were scrubbed from the roll. It was a greater number of voters in Georgia who were removed because they were black than the number of new voters who registered to vote. Georgia's total pool of voters has actually gone down. It's just, I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, it's story after story after story. How do you sleep? Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. DollarShaveClub.com delivers amazing razors right to your door for a third of the price of what the greedy razor corporations charge. They also have great shaving products like Dr. Carver's Shave Butter. This shave butter isn't your average shave cream. It's a unique conditioning formula with high-quality natural ingredients, leaving your skin unbelievably soft and smooth. When you use their executive razor with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter, the blade just glides for the smoothest shave ever. Now is a great time to join the Dollar Shave Club. New members who buy a tube of shave butter get a month of the executive razor blades for free. Take advantage of this special offer today. It's available by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. Wake up and see. Wake up and see. Wake up. Big media are heralding a federal appeals court ruling striking down a North Carolina law that made it harder to vote. Harder for some, that is. The court noted that the restrictions on things like early voting and same-day registration targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision, and indeed came in the wake of the state's request for specific data on voting practices by race which itself came in the wake of the Supreme Court's ruling in Shelby County v. Holder, saying that states with histories of discrimination no longer needed to get federal clearance for such changes. So it's great to see the New York Times, for instance, excoriating North Carolina Republicans' scurrilous attempt to suppress the rising power of black voters. 
In a better world, of course, such campaigns would not have enjoyed years of tailwind from media like the Times, rhetorically balancing claims of potential voter fraud with evidence of actual voter suppression. And mindful of the paper's current note that court decisions like this one show the bitter struggle for basic fairness beyond the national spotlight, we'll look for media to report this story out with follow-up on how, for instance, North Carolina will mitigate the inevitable confusion over the new exceptions, given that there's no funding for public education, as Samantha Lockman notes at Huffington Post. Or on how, as the nation's Ari Berman points out, this ruling poses a challenge to the Supreme Court's Shelby decision, premised on voter suppression as a thing of the past. Kristen Clark of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law reminded in testimony at the DNC how, after the 15th Amendment, states like Alabama introduced bans on voting by people convicted of felonies, along with purposefully ill-defined crimes of moral turpitude in an admitted effort to disenfranchise black Americans. These rules that prevent many who've served time in prison from ever voting again were also precisely crafted with a goal in mind, and even after the court's recent ruling, they're still achieving it. Media interest in the issue is welcome. We hope they'll remember that their spotlight is most useful where folks are still working in shadow. Back in 2013, in October of 2013, Asif Manvi went down to North Carolina in the wake of the uh, these restrictions, voter ID, uh, broadly speaking, uh, uh, voter restrictions. And he sat down with a guy named Don Yelton. He was the a member of the North Carolina Republican Party. He was the Buncombe County Precinct Chair for the GOP. And this was their exchange. CP, the bottom line is the law is not racist. Of course the law is not racist. And you are not racist. <laughs> well, I've been called a bigot before. Let me tell you something. You don't look like me. But I, I think I've treated you the same as I would anybody else. Right. Matter of fact, one of my best friends is black. So one of your best friends, one of my best friends is black? Yes. And there's more. When I was a young man, you didn't call a black a black. You called him a Negro. Uh, I had a picture one time of Obama sitting on a stump as a witch doctor. And I posted that on Facebook. I was making fun of my white half of Obama, not the black guy. And now you have a black person using the term nigger this, nigger that, and it's okay for them to do it. You know that we can hear you, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know that. You, you, you know that we can hear you. Yeah. 
Okay, all right. Then I found out the real reason for the law. The law is going to kick the Democrats in the butt. Wow. An executive GOP committee member just admitted that this law isn't designed to hurt black people. It's designed to hurt Democrats. If it hurts a bunch of college kids is too lazy to get up off their bohunkers and, and go get a photo ID, so be it. Right, right. If it hurts the whites, so be it. If it hurts a bunch of lazy blacks that wants their, the government to give them everything, so be it. And it just so happens that a lot of those people vote Democrat. Gee. TP, <laughs> the bottom line is the law. All right, so there you have it. That is, uh, that was a shot heard around the world, as it were. And in fact, in this past week's North Carolina Fourth Circuit ruling, that exchange was cited in the, uh, the end notes, um, in the argument as to whether or not there was, um, it's a footnote on page 47. That uh, showed that even if done for partisan ends, um, the uh, repeal of these laws constituted racial discrimination. And so that's not where the story ends. Now, Asif uh, Manvi, of course, was on this program and uh, talked to us about that um, uh, that exchange. And you can go back and check it out. Um, I can't remember when when it was, but we we'll, we'll put it in the uh, would you know? November 8th, 2013. Yeah. So we spoke to Asif about, about three weeks later about that exchange and it was fascinating, but Yelton's not done. After that, he was fired by, um, the, the uh, Republican party because it was a little bit of a problem to address. Well, when it turned out that this was cited in that North Carolina case, Yelton went on his Facebook page and uh, was angry that the Buncombe County GOP chairman, Nathan West, once again, trashed him for being racist, right? Because they've got a, this, we're not like this guy that we were working with for all these years. We had no idea, no idea. This came out of the blue because of course, when a racist first reveals themselves, it's always on television during a comedy show not when he's working with his favorite fellow white guys i just feel more relaxed with a pakistani comedian that's right on camera to let my real feelings come out that's right you fellas it's so uptight with you guys you're always worried about voter fraud didn't want to say anything uh not on tv so this is what he wrote on facebook well the republicans again show their stupidity frankly nathan this is he's talking about that nathan west I would keep my mouth shut unless, this is all in capital letters, Don not believe in freedom of speech. Speech spelled S-P-E-A-C-H. Which it seems you don't. Not only that, how is you money spending going? Now, the real proof is that the court uses a comedy show and a cut and pasted clip to prove a case. Think that if party gives a shit, they would ask me what I said in its complete sentence. It would show exactly what I said. All caps. Nathan, you better be more concerned about the total takeover of this county by the progressives. 
This also shows the justice system totally corrupt. Where are your comments on that? Uh, Yelton went on to say that uh, West had uh, like a chronic case of hemorrhoids is a real pain in the ass that you can never seem to get rid of. So there you have it. Oh, Yelton goes on to say, uh, no need to add or take away when our courts use the daily comedy show for FIR, a ruling and the Buncombe County Republican chair doesn't see the danger there. And the media, both WLOS and WWNC, don't address that fact first. We are naked for media here in Buncombe County. They don't care either. If Hillary gets elected, they will be controlled. So, I wonder how many years. Uh, how many years uh, that guy served in that position, but... Uh, there you have it. Uh, good for Asif Manvi. Good for the comedy uh, for uh, The Daily Show. And uh, good, good. A new report, and uh, this is uh, one of several that has come out recently, looking at the primary election and concerns about Bernie Sanders uh, and Hillary Clinton. Was the election stolen? Uh, usually uh, the charge that I've seen is that it was stolen by Hillary or the, the Democrats, uh, the DNC, from Bernie Sanders. Uh, we have looked at as many of these, pretty much all of the uh, the complaints that I have seen throughout the year, we have looked at it. there is legitimacy to some, not of Hillary or the DNC stole, stealing it, but, you know, problems, counts that don't match up, fraud, concerns that there could be fraud. I always need to underscore that uh, the concerns could be error as well as fraud, just error in the counts. These machines fail all the time. They name the wrong winners. Uh, someone who didn't win an election, they name them as the winner, and you would never know unless you bothered to count the ballots where actual paper ballots are available. Uh, okay, so I, I want to get to this Election Justice USA report, uh, and you can go to uh, their website, electionjusticeusa.org, to read it for yourself. It's a 100-page report, a lot of information. Um, some good folks over there working on this thing. So a lot of people have been asking me about it, and I want to respond to a few points. Obviously, not enough time to go through an entire 100-page report here, but let me just give you my general take on this report. So Election Justice USA, um, reading from their report here, is a national nonpartisan team of seasoned election integrity experts, attorneys, statisticians, journalists, and activists. This report summarizes the work of the Election Justice USA forensics and legal teams uh, during this, uh, the period of the uh, primary election, uh, EJUSA is working not only to expose the voter suppression and election fraud taking place during the 2016 presidential primaries, but to build a mass movement calling for three simple, affordable reforms that will render direct fraud and suppression impossible. 
Safeguarding U.S. elections for future candidates. Now, I'll just comment for a moment to say uh, you cannot render direct fraud or suppression impossible, but you can make it much harder, and I support their efforts to do that. The the intro of the report goes on to say the argument Election Justice USA is advancing suggests that an algorithm may have been applied to electronically counted votes during the Democratic prim, uh, primary. Election Justice USA has established an upper estimate of 184 pledged delegates lost by Senator Sanders as a consequence of specific irregularities and instances of fraud. Adding these delegates to Senator Sanders' pledged delegate total and subtracting the same number from Hillary Clinton's total would more than erase the 359 pledged delegate gap between the two candidates, they say. EJUSA established that upper estimate through exit polling data, statistical analysis by precinct size, attention to details of Democratic proportional awarding of national delegates, uh, and they say even small changes in vote shares in critical states like Massachusetts and New, New York could have substantially changed the media narrative. Um, so that's just to give you an idea. Uh, they go on to make recommendations uh, for the avoidance of election fraud in the future in, in U.S. elections. Fraud they claim has gone on here in the primary. And on this point, on these three points, by the way, I completely agree with them. And I want to get this in before I get to breaking down some of the details of their report because I completely agree with their recommendations. Very simply put, number one, two, three, one, exclusive use of hand-counted paper ballots in all future U.S. elections. Good solution. Very difficult to game publicly overseen hand-counted paper ballots. Well, that's one of hand marked paper ballots, not computer printed paper ballots like we're about to get here in Los Angeles uh, in in the next year or two. But hand marked paper ballots counted by hand at the precinct. Well, that's that's part of the reason, like when we saw the Brexit vote in Britain, they used hand counted paper marked. I mean, hand marked paper, which is one of the reasons why it's hard to discredit the results, unlike in this in this country. Number two, automatic voter registration. With same-day party affiliation switching as a mandatory condition for all elections that are publicly funded, I agree with that as well. So everyone's registered, and if they want to switch parties on the day of the primary, they can do it at the polling place, at least if these are publicly funded elections. Shouldn't exclude somebody, I, I believe, if, if the taxpayers are paying for the election, shouldn't exclude anybody from being able to vote. Uh, number three, restoration of voting rights legislation, which would ensure adequate access to polling sites. So this refers to the Supreme Court gutting uh, the Voting Rights Act and so forth. So I agree with all of the recommendations in the Election Justice USA report um, without apology, without, uh, the, you know, question. Now, I'm loath to criticize their report because I don't want to discourage anyone anyone from investigating, anyone in the public from investigating our elections. And I've, you know, want to say I've reviewed dozens and dozens of pages of their report and other ones that we've seen in recent weeks. I have not read the whole thing. It's 100 pages, a lot of stuff, a lot of data, um, a lot of uh, stuff, frankly, that I'm not a statistical expert or a polling expert, okay? Um, so I'll, I'll post a link to it at Brad blog, and I hope you'll read it for yourself to make your own decisions about it. As I said, there's some good, honest work in there by some very good people, uh, a fellow by the name of Paul Thomas, for example, one of the folks who did excellent work back, uh, on the 2004 election in Ohio. So it, 
the, the report ultimately documents much of what we have known and talked about on this program, on the broadcast and at bradblog.com for years, that we have terrible, opaque counting systems, terrible, often easily gamed registration systems, and terrible state and county procedures. But the report itself, while there's a lot of good stuff in there, uh, the, the report, particularly the sections uh, on exit polling disparities and electronic voting systems, I think, just my opinion, go read it for yourself, uh, but I think it and other reports like it are hugely over-reliant uh, on the already adjusted or incomplete or inaccurately represented exit poll data. And statistical assumptions uh, or analysis about that, comparing the disparities between what the exit poll said and what the uh, actual reported results were from the computers. In short, let me put this another way. I don't care about supposed exit poll disparities, and I don't care for a number of reasons. For one, exit polls uh, are not done the same way here in the U.S. that they are done uh, in other countries where they are specifically designed to protect against potential fraud or at least to uh, offer signs of potential fraud. Uh, the polls here, and I've talked to many exit pollsters about this over the years, they do not design them to root out fraud. They, des they design them to serve the corporate media who wants to know uh, who's voting, uh, male, female, how much money they make, what their college education level is, and so forth. What it's, they were concerned about. It's meant for demographic, right, what, what were their top concerns. That's what those polls are designed for. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't offer a yellow or red flag as far as, hey – the results here don't match up with the results as reported, but we don't know where those results match up or don't because they don't release the raw data. The uh, exit polls are weighted from the beginning to match what the pollsters think the demogra demographics will be. You know, it would be one thing if we had the raw data, if we could compare the results at this particular precinct the exit poll uh, results at this particular precinct versus the election results at this particular precinct, then they didn't match up. Then we could count the ballots and make sure that they were accurate. Uh, in any event, they don't release that raw data. There is no such thing as unadjusted exit polls versus, you know, the, the, the results at the end of the night that they adjust the, both the exit polls to match the computer reported results. So the very first released so-called unadjusted data is already adjusted by weighting and so forth, uh, for demographics. There's nothing nefarious about that. It's done with their small sampling of precincts in, in a county or state to try and match the larger county or state results. Um, still, I don't care. I would want to see actual ballots actually counted by human beings no matter what the exit poll said. If this study or any other looked at, uh, you know, the, the exits versus the results and said, nope, we see no signs of fraud whatsoever. This was a clean election. I would still say, I don't care. I still want you to count those ballots. Well, cause really I still want human beings to count the ballots and find out if the results were accurate or if the computers screwed it up by error or by fraud. Because you're saying the only way to know for sure, or at least have some modicum, modicum of being knowing Correct. for sure, is to count the ballots Even, themselves. That's right. 
So even if there were no disparities at all, I wouldn't care. So, you know, we see a lot of studies. We've seen these going all the way back to 2004. I've never been particularly moved by them, by statistical analysis of results. I say count the ballots. Count the ballots. So, okay. Um, Nonetheless, they outline a lot of the concerns that they have, and they are welcome to have those concerns, uh, although it suggests that because there is this disparity between exit polling and voting machines, it can only be voting machines uh, that were were wrong or, or defrauded in some fashion. Even if we find out that the that the results are wrong it doesn't mean it's fraud these machines it simply prove f- that it's fraud these well these machines fail all the time right they just report the wrong winner so at best in my opinion uh again exit polls use them for red or yellow flags to give hints as to where people may want to count ballots or to take other measures to test the theory that fraud or error has happened in that place uh but it's not proof in and of itself uh, now, I don't know that Election Justice USA makes that specific claim, but that becomes the suggestion based on a lot of the language I find in their report and many other reports. And again, I, I hate saying it because I don't want to discourage their work, but I need to, you know, people have been asking me about this uh, report and I, I want to respond to it. Now, uh, in many places in the U.S., as I've reported for years, we can never know who voters actually voted for. Because in some of these places, elected uh, and election officials hate democracy so much that they force them to vote on these 100 percent unverifiable uh, touchscreen-like systems. But even those systems can be audited in various ways. It's difficult. It's not frequently allowed. But, you know, if you see an area that you suspect is, you know, fraud or error, there are ways to go in and investigate and file suit and get access to the systems and so on and so forth. It's far easier to to do that where there's paper ballot systems. Um, hand-marked, as I said, not computer-printed like coming to Los Angeles, but hand-marked paper ballot uh, systems that can actually be counted. FOIA them. If you have concerns about the results, make public records requests and, and count them. Out here in California, for example, every single paper ballot that was cast could have been counted by hand across the entire state by law. After the June 7th uh, presidential primary election, uh, any voter, you don't even have to be a candidate, any voter can file for a hand count. Now, to my knowledge, none of the folks arguing or or insinuating that the election was stolen for Hillary or by Hillary in California, in California or elsewhere have filed for a hand count. They could have done that in California. Uh, Why didn't they? Uh, I was speaking with the Richard Hayes Phillips, uh, a historian uh, who has looked in. He did fantastic work in Ohio after the questionable 2004 presidential election there. He wrote a book called Witness to a Crime uh, about his investigation going county by county and counting ballots, actual ballots, not statistical guesswork, but actual ballots, finding all kinds of fraud in Ohio. One of the things he told me about uh, this report and others like it is that the folks who are writing it seem to be starting with the cheese and working backwards to the mouse. In other words, uh, they're trying to do science, but they've come in and they've got this preconceived notion that this election was stolen. It was fraud. And then they go about trying to find evidence to support 
that theory. Um, I'm not a scientist, uh, but I don't think that's how science is supposed to work, where you start with your assumption and work backwards and only look at the evidence that sort of supports that assumption. Now, again, don't want to discourage uh, any investigation here, and it is because of these non-transparent systems that we use that even afford the opportunity for this type of challenge uh, to the results, these questions about the results, whether it's from Trump and, and friends on the right or Democrats and Sanders supporters on the left. That's the problem. It doesn't matter whether Trump and his friends are right or wrong. It doesn't matter whether the Sanders supporters uh, are right or wrong. Their concerns, which we allow to happen because of these systems, that in and of itself is a grave threat to uh, America's style of representative democracy. I've been saying this for years, and now we are seeing it. We're seeing those chickens come home to roost in this election. So, you know, I, again, there's a lot of good stuff in uh, in their report. There's a lot of stuff that I don't either I don't agree with or I find an error uh, or I'm just not particularly moved by it for reasons that I hope I have adequately explained here. I had hoped to get to some calls to take some questions on this, but it doesn't look like we're going to have time because I prattled on too much. <laughs> but I want to be clear about this. Uh, but I think that when when we go out and we say that such and such results can only have been due to fraud or due to voting machine hacks, um, I think you need serious evidence to prove that rather than make assertions. And it's not just this report. Other ones have done it. So I'm not trying to single them out. But I do, I, I do take exception to declaring fraud without proof of fraud. That's a damn serious charge. A stolen election is a damn serious charge. And in fact, they do offer proof of registration fraud of some type in various places. Now, whether it's enough to have flipped, uh, you know, the election for Sanders to Hillary, they don't show enough of that yet. Uh, to make that case, as far as I'm concerned, we've been reporting on voter registration problems and concerns about fraud and insiders hacking the uh, voting system, the registration systems on this program throughout the election cycle. So, you know, and the other thing, by the way, is not just fraud uh, by hackers and outside hackers and uh, uh, error by these crappy machines that often get it wrong. They're misprogrammed the source code or the ballot programming for each and every ballot, but they can also be easily manipulated by insiders, election insiders. This is the easiest way to do it. No hacking necessary. Insiders have access uh, with just a few keystrokes to change the results entirely of any election. And there's almost no reason that anybody would ever notice unless they bothered to count the ballots by hand. So, you know, this is how we find uh, fraud and error. For example, in New York, and this, uh, some of the Election Justice USA people are from New York, it was uh, the FOIAs, Freedom of Information Act uh, uh, of, of ballots, public records requests of ballots, counting actual ballots by the New York Daily News that subsequently found that thousands of votes on the brand new computer voting systems used in New York back in 2010 had lost thousands of votes, had dropped thousands of votes. It took years 
But like two years later, they finally found out, yeah, it looked like uh, potentially tens of thousands of votes went completely uncounted back in 2010. And they discovered that by counting the ballots. That was New York Daily News did that. So, uh, you know. I think it's 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 these reports in one sense they are helpful obviously to give us information about what happened and what didn't but I think it's also not helpful to declare fraud or even suggest fraud or a stolen election without hard evidence to support that charge because then it makes it makes it really easy to dismiss uh when there actually is hard evidence and that's what has been done for years we've seen the mainstream corporate media say oh this is conspiracy theory there's not these are conspiracy theorists well those same people you know who have been talking about conspiracy theorists are now reporting hello npr and you know newsweek and christian monitor washington post right now they're reporting hey there's real concerns that these machines are vulnerable to hacking yes they are there's always room for improvement Cold days without any movement I don't want to be stuck in just my inner child talking Always room for improvement Flattery won't turn me into your servant I want to score big, but you keep chasing nickels and dimes. Please let us stop committing crimes. There's always room for improvement. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism demand that Representative Goodlatte hold Voting Rights Act hearings. Last weekend, we marked the 51st anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. It came almost poetically after six federal appeals courts struck down voter suppression laws in North Carolina, Wisconsin, Kansas, Texas, Michigan, and North Dakota. These were huge victories, but the fight is far from over. Just look at Missouri, where Republicans are actually trying to amend the state constitution to solidify voter suppression laws. As has been covered previously, the 2016 presidential primary elections were a mess. We need to go beyond just restoring the Voting Rights Act. We need to modernize it with the Voting Rights Advancement Act. But Congress has been silent. That's why this week, NAACP National President and CEO Cornell William Brooks led a six-hour nonviolent sit-in with 20 activists at Congressman Bob Goodlatte's office in Virginia, which ended in arrests for trespassing. Brooks was calling on Goodlatte, who is the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, to hold hearings on voting rights legislation to combat what he called the new, quote, multiracial Jim Crow 2.0 voter suppression that affects young people, unquote. Goodlatte had said that he would support strengthening the VRA if current discrimination could be shown, but apparently federal courts pointed it out in six states wasn't enough. In a NAACP release, Brooks said, quote, with the fate of our national moral character at stake, we must hold our elected leaders responsible to act to uphold the constitutional rights guaranteed for all citizens to vote and participate in our democracy, unquote. You can stand with the NAACP and Cornell Brooks and demand the Voting Rights Act hearings take place by calling Congressman Goodlatte and telling him yourself. The number to reach Goodlatte's Roanoke office, where they are right now, is 540 540- 
857-2672, or you can call the DC office at 202-225-5431. To hear those again, you know, just hit rewind. You can also tweet at Goodlat on Twitter at RepGoodlat. Lat is spelled like latte uh, with the hashtag RestoreTheVRA. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If making sure every American can take part in our democracy is important to you, then be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about democracy demanding Representative Goodlatte hold VRA hearings via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. And I would like to remind everyone that we are about to have our first presidential election in 50 years without the full Voting Rights Act in place. And we've already seen a preview of what's to come. So make fighting voter disenfranchisement part of your theory of change. Start getting involved by downloading the NAACP's Civic Engagement Toolkit at NAACP.com org and help them register 300,000 voters this summer or get involved with other organizations fighting for voting rights like Democracy Awakening, the Brennan Center for Justice, the ACLU, Rock the Vote, and FairVote.org. No matter who wins in November, as progressives, we always need to be prepared to fight. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change We Americans may love our democracy, at least in theory But at the moment, our feelings toward the federal government lie somewhere between disdain and hatred. Consider these numbers. In 1958, the American National Elections Study found that 73% of Americans said they trusted the government either most of the time or just about always. So 73% in 1958. As of last year, that number was 19%. Congressional approval ratings have plummeted. They now range from roughly 10 to 20 percent. So it's probably no coincidence that the U.S. has one of the very lowest voter turnout rates in national elections among OECD countries at just over 50 percent. The conventional wisdom is to wonder why so few Americans vote. But given the way we feel about government, a better question might be why so many bother? That said, We keep having elections, relatively orderly ones at that. This year's presidential election has already proven somewhat less orderly than usual and may well get even weirder. So we thought we might do our civic duty here at Freakonomics Radio by taking a level-headed look at the American electoral system. Some time back, we put out an episode called This Idea Must Die, where we asked scientists to nominate a scientific idea that had outlived its usefulness. Today, with apologies and thanks to Edge.org, from whom we stole that idea, we present This Idea Must Die Election Edition. You will recall that Olympia Snow, the former Republican senator from Maine, was so appalled by the partisanship in Congress that she quit to try to reform the system from the outside. Among her proposed solutions 
getting rid of gerrymandering through independent nonpartisan districting, limiting the power of political action committees, and requiring a five-day work week in Congress, which would, as she writes, provide additional time to address the critical issues while also fostering more opportunities for senators and representatives to interact socially with each other in Washington. But if there's one idea that Snow would personally like to kill off, it would be... A closed primary. Meaning a nominating contest that is closed to voters who aren't registered with a particular party. Today, there are very few what you would call centrist, moderate candidates on either side of the political aisle. And that's the problem. You no longer have the middle in politics. There is the middle in America, but they're not producing the candidates because the primaries are so close that it gets locked down. And so it's only those who are the hardline activists that are ultimately voting in the primaries and therefore voting those who are more aligned to their views that are not predisposed to building compromise or consensus that are nominated. And therefore, that is the choice for many in the general election. And the bigger fear today among elected officials is facing a primary because that's where you get the more hardline ideologues who are going to be participating as well as the outside groups that weigh in with millions of dollars and that will work to defeat these candidates. So that is the problem. Open primaries already exist in 11 states, while a few more, including California, have what's called a top two primary. That lets voters choose any candidate they want in a single open primary, and then the two top vote-getters advance to the general election, even if they're both from the same party. So far, political scientists are split on whether open primaries really help. Some research shows that moderate candidates don't do any better in an open primary. Others argue the change in California has already led to more competitive elections and a more functional state legislature. We need to change the way we currently vote. That's Howard Dean. My title is former, former governor, former chairman of the DNC, former presidential candidate. The DNC, for those who don't know, is the Democratic National Committee. If I could do a single thing in American politics, it would be to get rid of the single vote for your favorite candidate. Right now, we vote for one person, and that person either wins or it doesn't win. That is, if there's 10 candidates in a race, you get one vote. There's a system called ranked choice voting where you don't get just your vote for the top choice that you have. You also get to vote on all the other choices, and you get to rank them. So that if your candidate doesn't win, your second choice vote counts. What that does is create, as the winner, the person who is best respected and best liked overall in the electorate. It's just a good system. The other thing about it is that it makes people behave themselves better. Uh, San Francisco put in ranked choice voting a few years ago, and they had the most polite mayor's campaign that you ever saw. Because if you're hoping to get somebody's second or third choice vote, if you know they're not going to get their first, you're not going to say anything bad about them in the campaign because you drive those voters away. And those are the voters that eventually get you elected. So ranked choice voting simply means uh, that you get multiple choices, you can weight your choices, and the candidate that the most people like, and usually the one that's the most reasonable, becomes the next mayor, the next president, the next senator. And I think that makes voters happy, it makes politicians behave better, and it's something that's coming slowly to the United States, and where we have it, it works well. 
A lot of the people we talked to for this episode had similar-ish ideas about modernizing or at least adding some nuance to our current electoral habits. Rob Ritchie, for instance, of the electoral reform group called Fair Vote. I'd like to get rid of winner-take-all elections to elect Congress, state legislatures, and city councils. So whoever gets 51% of the vote represents 100% of people. If you get 60% of the vote, you not only represent 100% of people, but no one even cares about the election because you're going to win easily. And we're left with elections that leave most people stuck in sort of lopsided one-party districts. The proposal that we put out there, there's something called the Fair Representation Act as a draft, and we have some members of Congress who do want to put it in. What it does is a statutory change that within states, they would take congressional elections, go from having only one person per area to bigger areas with more than one person. So a state like Massachusetts might go from nine one-winner districts to three three three-member districts, and then in each district, it would take about a third of the vote to win a seat. That degree of opening up the system does some really interesting things. One, it makes the general election matter, and it very methodically and reliably represents the left, center, and right of every district. If there's one thing that I could do differently in our democracy, it would be doing away with straight-ticket voting. And that is Joaquin Castro, a Democratic congressman from Texas. Straight-ticket voting means that you can go into a ballot booth and without looking at any of the individual candidates or races on the ballot, at the top of the ballot, you can simply mark that you want to vote for all the Democrats or all the Republicans. And what it's done is it's allowed a lot of people to go into the ballot booth really on autopilot uh, without considering the specific candidates in a particular race. So... If I could retire straight-ticket voting, I would. Norman Ornstein is resident scholar at a conservative think tank called the American Enterprise Institute. He, too, is troubled by the overt partisanship in politics. So I've become a big proponent of the Australian system of mandatory attendance at the polls. In Australia, and this is a system that they've used for eight decades or so now, you don't have to vote. Uh, but you do have to show up at the polls or write a plausible excuse. If you don't show up and if you don't write the excuse, you're subject to a small fine. In my various trips to Australia and my discussions with politicians of all political stripes there, they will tell you that when you know that your base is going to be turning out to the polls and when the other side's base you know is going to be turning out to the polls, Your focus turns to the persuadable voters in the middle, and it changes the way you talk about politics. You don't talk in the most strident and extreme terms in ways that are designed to gin up your base or to scare them to death. You don't work on wedge issues, things like abortion or transgender bathroom issues. Instead, you talk about the issues that matter most to the broad range of voters and especially those persuadable ones, the big ticket items. And you're forced into talking in ways that look at the issues so that you can persuade people.
We just heard clips featuring Democracy Now! speaking with Ari Berman to discuss the striking down of voting restriction laws that targeted African Americans. Tom Hartman highlighted stories of further strategies to deter voting in the South. The Majority Report revived the classic Daily Show segment that was instrumental in revealing the voter suppression strategies for what they were. Brad Friedman on the Bradcast responded to the Election Justice USA report on the Democratic primaries. Our activism for today is to pressure the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Bob Goodlatte, to hold hearings on new voting rights legislation. And finally, we just heard a collection of election reform ideas compiled by the Freakonomics podcast. I highly recommend their entire episode on this topic. It's their July 27th, 2016 episode. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Clive Franklin calling from Cary, North Carolina. Just listened to your episode uh, 2016-0802 about the um, election and uh, wanted to respond to your comments about what you heard from Jill Stein. And I um, agree with you for the most part uh, as far as her politicizing, um, possibly politicizing the word fear and using it that way and saying if uh, we're voting for Hillary, we're voting out of fear of Donald Trump. And I'm just now learning about the Green Party and about Jill Stein and a lot of their party platform uh, I had never looked into before, but it's really interesting to me. So, you know, her and her politicizing aside, my wife and I have been um, are definitely considering uh, switching our registration to uh, the Green Party, assuming we don't find anything to object to. Not that I can speak or should speak on on her behalf, and I'm not trying to. I'm just offering another alternative to the word, the way she used the word fear. Coming from the philosophy arena, um, the word fear uh, does not necessarily mean fear is in the emotion fear what it could mean is simply the fact that if people vote for hillary they're voting for hillary as a protection against donald trump being elected and that could fall under the label of fear even though the emotion of fear is not attached to it and even though other rational thought is attached to uh, in insofar as evaluating uh the, the merits of hillary versus the merits of donald trump and that could be what she meant. You know, just I have no idea because I'm obviously not in her head. But the other thing is, as far as theory of change, my wife had a very interesting idea as far as uh, strategy, which is that if you're in a state that, like North Carolina, where the vote is expected to be really close, we are definitely going to vote for Hillary, even though we would, don't care for Hillary very much. And we much prefer someone like Bernie or Jill Stein to be president because it's that close. But she also mentioned that there are states where the Democratic candidate has virtually no chance to succeed, even if all the Democrats vote for Hillary and uh, some of the swing voters. In those states, it could help in terms of numbers if people start voting more third party, Green Party or whatever. Uh, third party seems appropriate to them in the sense that, first of all, the Democrats will see that the numbers of votes um, didn't fall to them, and the third parties will see that votes did fall to their party. And that's going to provide some momentum for them to grow and 
provide some basis for them to appeal to volunteers and to uh, donations and so forth. So that being said, I think the, the theory of change in the immediate sense, as in the November election, is going to come down to where you are and, and uh, the mathematics of your state. In the long term, uh, I agree with you and with, I think I heard a commentary from uh, Michael Savage about getting a bunch of us to run under you know, third party names, uh, Green Party, Bernie, Kratz, or whatever, in order to get more visibility, get the name out there, get us in more positions, and we will be positioning ourselves to, as third partiers to, to get more power. And so I do think that's, that's a great strategy in the long run. For the immediate election, I think we just need to, to think in terms of practicality. You can call it fear-based or not, but uh, it is protection and it needed protection from getting Donald Trump elected. Uh, thanks for a great show again, and uh, take care, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick update on my Climate Ride fundraiser. Things are going very well. We can we can put this thing away in no time. Uh, just a quick reminder, I'm trying to raise $5,500 for climate change and sustainability organizations, and I would love for a total of 200 people to donate. Those are my two parallel goals. And just this last Friday, I said that we were up to, you know, I want to say about 94 people had donated somewhere in that neighborhood and that we still had $2,300 remaining before we reached our goal. Now, just a few days later, that number is down to just $800 remaining, and we're up to 109 total donors. So $800 remaining and 16 days to do it. Like I said, we can wipe this thing out in no time, but I'm going to keep it going until we get those 200 donors. doesn't matter how much you donate. If you got five bucks to chip in, chip in five bucks. So of course, thank you to Dana, Gina, David, Kevin, Stefan, Don, Scott, Linda, Aaron, Kristen, Don, Randon, Matt, Jeffrey, Mary, Harry, Maria, Doris, and 10 additional anonymous donors. Uh, all of those people donated just within the past few days. So huge thanks to all of them and to every, everyone who has donated and everyone who will donate. Quick update on uh, my training for the ride. Uh, I've mentioned before that I, I, I have been getting back on the bike, getting, getting back in the swing of it. I haven't been, uh, in the habit of riding a lot recently. So the two big updates are that I looked more closely at the logistics of this ride. Uh, I haven't done this ride before and it turns out it's longer than I thought it was. So I was already a little bit nervous that I was unprepared and, and thinking I really need to pick it up in this final month before the ride. And now I am utterly confident that I'm unprepared and feel <laughs> desperate that I need to get on the bike and ride just for as long as I can on every single day that I have available to go for a ride. That's, that's what my uh, days are looking like. And then, and then the other update is that about a week ago, I crashed my bike 
hey, no big deal. Uh, I, I walked away from it pretty much unscathed. Uh, the way I describe my injuries is that you remember when Wesley in The Princess Bride uh, wrestles with the R.O.U.S. in the fire swamp and he comes out of it with that uh, giant um, bloody shoulder? That's about what I looked like divided by 10. So my shoulder was red, but instead of Wesley's like entire shoulder being bloodied, uh, mine was like one tenth of that. So no big deal, but it, but at least you get a, a sense of, of how that went. Bottom line, I, I, I got to get back on the bike. Finally today, I, I can't believe this is true, but I, I still have more to say about uh, the election and voting strategy and, and all of these things. I, every single time, I think I'm done. I think, all right, I've said everything I need to say. And then I, I have another thought and feel the need to say it. As I'm always happy to preface, there there is so much legitimate anger to go around. I'm, I'm totally on board with all of the legitimate anger. All I'm talking about is when it comes to the very narrow issue of the Bernie or bust, uh, Jill not Hill, hashtag never Hillary, versus the let's just elect Hillary and then hold her feet to the fire every single moment of every single day, starting from before her term in office even begins, that's the side I fall on. I, I just I cannot get down with the Bernie or Bus movement. And uh, always nice to remember that Bernie himself, not down with the Bernie or Bus movement. And, and, you know, I say, look, let's put her into office and bring her to heel. I, I just... To pull a phrase out of thin air, uh, that's what I think we should do. So the one thing I have to comment on is that the argument I hear a lot is that if the Democrats lose, it won't be because of the people who voted green or who wrote in Bernie's name or did any of those things. It won't be their fault they claim it will be the Democrats' fault for nominating a bad candidate or being corrupt or not reaching out enough to the Bernie Kratz wing of the party or all of the, they have all of these ideas of whose fault it'll really be. And I find this entirely frustrating because the answer to whose fault it will be is very simple. If one party or the other loses the election, this will be the reason. You ready? It is because they will have received fewer votes in the Electoral College. That's it. That is the entire reason. They're right. It's not because they voted for the Green Party that the Democrats will have lost. Equally, though, it's not because they put forward a bad candidate. It's not because they were too corporate. It's not because the DNC was corrupt. It's not any of those things. The reason will be because they got fewer votes. Period. End of story. So if Donald Trump is elected and he is as bad or even one-tenth as bad as we think he's going to be, it's true. It won't be because of those people who voted for the Green Party, but equally, it's not going to be because of anything the Democrats did either. It's because of what the voters did. It's because fewer people voted for the Democrats than the Republicans. 
End of story. As always, I hope I never have to talk about this again, but please keep the comments coming in on this or any other topic you like. The number 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. It's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what Stories and forget who it is with